Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace, and this is the Science Short Series. In this week's show, we are focusing on the largest land mammal on the planet. Of course, I am talking about the mighty elephant. Our focus is going to be in northern Botswana along the edge of the Okavango Delta. And we're going to be discussing human-wildlife conflict, how coexistence works in a landscape where elephants and humans are often sharing very similar resources. And quite surprisingly, and something I wasn't really expecting from this conversation, what it was like being there the day that the hunting ban was lifted in Botswana, and what the reaction from the local people was. I'm speaking with Lauren Redmore. She is a recent PhD graduate in Applied Biodiversity Science. She is also an Ecoexist Fellow with the Ecoexist Project in Northern Botswana. And we're going to be talking about what is essentially her, her PhD, but it's a paper that has been adapted from that research and uh, recently accepted into ecology and society. And the paper is called Where Elephants Roam, Perceived Risk, Vulnerability and Adaption in the Okavango Delta. Her co-authors were Amanda Stronza, Anna Songhurst and Graham McCulloch. When this podcast goes out, that paper won't actually be available to read yet, uh, but I'm sure that Lauren will share it as soon as it's actually out and published. And you can follow her on Twitter, which is just at Lauren Redmore. That's R-E-D-M-O-R-E for Redmore. This is an incredible insight into what it's really like to live with these amazing but very destructive animals. But before we get into the podcast, a massive thank you very much to all of you who support this show on Patreon you make it possible for these shows to go out every week. Uh, if you would like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace, and you can have a look at the tiers and see how you can support the show. For as little as the cost of a cup of coffee a month, uh, you can really, really make a difference. What also massively helps is if you can rate and review the show. Quite a lot of you have done that in the last couple of weeks, and it is massively appreciated. So just head over to wherever it is that you listen to this podcast and uh, find where you can rate or review, uh, because it, it helps other people get this podcast recommended to them. So without any further delay, I welcome Lauren Redmore to the podcast. Yeah, this work was conducted in the eastern panhandle of the Okavango Delta. Okay, I'm going to stop you right there. Panhandle. Like, just describe that to me. So I know yeah. the Delta a little bit. Like, and actually, I did double, I, I, in my mind, I kind of knew what a panhandle was, but I did actually have to go and look it up just to make sure that I could picture this correctly in my head. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, so the when where the Okavango River comes down into Botswana and the the delta kind of fans out, um, that looks so much like um, a fry pan. And so, um, if you can picture the the fry pan that is the Okavango Delta, then you can imagine that it's kind of in the um, where the the pan is hanging down. You can picture that the the eastern panhandle is kind of in the upper right corner there. Okay. Okay. So I've got this. I've got this in my mind now, and I have actually been to uh, to that part of Botswana. It, it's fantastic. But the one thing that's very obvious when I was there, which was just last year, was the density of elephants, and that was obvious not only in the number of elephants that I was seeing, and just from a, a very sort of superficial standpoint, as like the number of animals I was seeing, most of them were elephants while I was driving around, but also the the what looked like you know, a vast amount of damage, particularly to trees. I mean, that is 
a function of how elephants live, is that they are landscape architects. And, and that somewhat feeds into the, the research that you were doing. Yeah, exactly. And, and that question of, of the impact of elephants on the landscape, um, you know, and, and humans and elephants are so similar in, in the way that they kind of create that landscape. And I, th- I thought it was so interesting to imagine what it would be like to live in that landscape where elephants are really the one of the dominant forces with people um, and, and as well as cattle. Um, and so if you can kind of imagine that, um, you know, the biggest risk and the biggest um, perceived risk that people have as they're kind of going about their daily activities is elephants. Um, and so that that really drove drove the questions to my research. Okay, so this is, I mean, this is interesting because so much of what we talk about in terms of conservation, particularly in Africa, is how humans are living in that landscape and interacting with wildlife and how we manage these conflicts, which are often resource-driven, uh, but also in this case, this is the sort of the very real danger of life and death from living in a landscape with elephants. Yeah, exactly. And so much of the research on human wildlife conflict, um, a lot of it's done kind of at um, either the community level or the household or individual level. But we really miss a lot of kind of thinking about what the community dynamics are and thinking about the fact that households don't live on their own. They're interacting with other households. People are interacting with other people. And there's really a community dynamic that I think gets missed a lot when so much of the research is um, using survey tools or kind of using some of the big um, landscape level data. And so I really wanted to use an ethnographic approach um, to really understand uh, what is it like to live with elephants uh, that threat of 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 running into an elephant, of not really knowing whether and, and and since you've been there, I mean, there's so many shrubs that can really easily hide elephants. They're they're oh, kind yeah. of masters of disguise, um, and so you know it's it's kind of amazing. You think, of course, you would see an elephant from a distance away, but actually, in reality, elephants are really sneaky. They're very quiet. Um, they're, they're really difficult to see, um, when you're, when you're not, uh, necessarily looking for them. And so I, I thought that that was a really interesting, um, uh, you know, kind of question to, to ask is like, how are people perceiving their risk as they, as they go, as they go about their daily activities and how are they kind of trying to mitigate that risk? Okay. So just to give and put this into context for people, I mean, this is a um, a very real and realized threat because people die every year from elephant interactions in these rural communities. Yeah, exactly. And so this research was um, really designed around um, uh, one of these deadly, unfortunately deadly interactions that happened while I was there um, during the very um, initial months of my research, uh, a man went out to collect firewood for his family. Um, you know, he was in his, I think he was like in his 60s and a healthy person. He had some adult children and some grandchildren living with him, and he never came back. Uh, the next day, his daughter went out to look for him, 
and she found um, an elephant lingering around his body. And so, unfortunately, you know, the they they suspected that he was trampled by an elephant, and they had to call the Department of Wildlife that came in um, and confirmed that yes, this is pro- probably what happened. And they so not only did this man die, but then the the Department of Wildlife actually had to to kill that elephant as well. So these conflicts are not just impactful to people. They're real conservation conflicts and they have real impacts for um, the the lives of elephants as well. So tell me, how how did you hope that the research that you were doing was going to inform a future approach where these conflicts could be minimized or, or managed or, or the risk be minimized. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the, the difficulties in, um, in the field of human elephant conflict is there's a real gap in knowledge in terms of kind of understanding the disaggregated level data um, so much of the the information we have is really driven by survey tools and really is kind of looking at it from a crop consumption perspective. So much of that work is really kind of focused around the livelihoods of farming, um, as well as kind of that community-based conservation, community-based natural resource management um, perspective, you know, f- uh, focusing on hunting revenues and that kind of thing. Um, but I, I really thought that it would be um, important to use an intersectional perspective to really understand who is being impacted um, and how, and 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 really looking at some of these um, the the intersections of of people's gender, um, their age, and ethnicity, um, and and so really um, most most of this research because it is. Uh, you know, I lived in Mokacha village for nine months and um, it was, it was really, the findings were driven by, by that experience of, of living in the village and kind of um, allowing the, the stories to emerge from just that experience of everyday life. So when you pulled all the, all this, this data in and you looked at how and who was interacting with elephants, you know, what did you find uh, and I think what, what's quite interesting with the study that you were doing is, like you say, this was focused on on firewood, which is an interesting interaction with elephants because, in a way, they are providing the firewood because this firewood collection is a byproduct of them moving across the landscape. So, in a way, there's a there's there's a little bit of give and take here. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think from from a theoretical perspective, um, we. You know, we collected firewood with people. Um, um, I think it. Now I can't remember how many times. I think it was fifty-four times, maybe. Um, and we actually were quantifying the amount of firewood that people were harvesting um, that had been uh, pulled down by elephants. And the majority of the firewood comes from elephants at this point, um, or when this research was conducted in twenty eighteen. Um, and so there, it seems like that's um, a form of adaptation. Like people are really actually targeting intentionally mo- moving into the areas where they know the elephants are are going to be pulling down firewood, um, and and so they they recognize that that's a risk as they're moving into those places, um, and they're they're 
placing all their bets anyway, because they know that the activity is made a lot easier. Um, Only in a few cases when we harvested firewood with people, did they actually bring an ax with them? So the majority of the wood was really, um, you know, I think, I think there's um, kind of this assumption of how firewood harvest happens across Africa. Um, And that is just a complete blanket assumption because here in, in this part of Botswana, we're seeing that people are not driving deforestation for firewood harvest. Um, and uh, really, the they're just um, making the best of kind of a, a, a difficult situation where they're living with elephants all the time. And so um, at least in, in this one regard, we are seeing that there is some sort of adaptation to the presence of, of 18,000 elephants in the eastern panhandle. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should just backtrack just for a minute and, and just explain also how that elephant population has changed over time. Because one of the reasons that this discussion is so relevant is this really rather rapid increase in population density, particularly in northern Botswana. Yeah, and and that was um, really so. I, I should add that um, I was working with an NGO called EcoExist, and they. Um, are, they're working in the Eastern Panhandle. And part of what drives their work um, is this, <clears throat> this recent uptick in, in elephant populations. So one of the thing, things I had heard from people in my study area is that they had never seen an elephant or they'd never seen a live elephant prior to 20 years ago. That um, seems unbelievable, doesn't it? It's, it's amazing. And so the, we're, we know that the population is rapidly increasing. Um, we know that they're likely... Um, seeking refuge in the Eastern Panhandle where, um, you know, I think there's a lot of talk about what does it, what does coexistence look like? And, you know, from my, I I don't have a lot of experience kind of across Southern Africa, but I can say that people did really, um, they were not thrilled to be living with so many elephants, but I think if we could uh, call it coexistence, I think that would be a, a relevant um, term to use for people living in that area. And what did you find about how the interactions were split uh, between male, female age groups? You know, what was the demographic breakdown? Yeah, so one of the the really surprising findings was um, so much of the work around vulnerability um, in you know in general uh, is really focused on women. And um, thinking that, you know, women are tend to be more vulnerable because of, you know, historical reasons, cultural reasons, etc. Um, and what I found is actually the opposite, that women have, because they tend to move around in groups when they're collecting um, different natural resources, the, um, the, the really interesting thing is that men are often... Um, um, conducting their livelihood activities often by themselves. Um, so that, that includes like going to their cattle crawl where they're penning their cattle at night. Um, and, and they go very early in the morning. So they're often leaving at like 6am when it's still dark outside. Um, and they're moving to their cattle crawls, which are often very isolated. Um, and they may, they may be walking with another friend or neighbor, 
but most of that, most of the time they're, they're alone, um, or with, uh, you know, small children, uh, you know, young male boys that are kind of learning the, the trade of cattle care. And, um, so, so I think that that really puts men at risk because they're having to collect firewood or move, move throughout the landscape when it's darker, um, when there's fewer people out and about. And, um, and, and that also combines with kind of this culture of, of masculinity where, um, one of, one of the, the dangers in, um, in being kind of a, a proud man is that, uh, you might think that, you know, you're, you're not going to be as affected or that you're, you should be brave. Right. And, um, so, so we actually found that, uh, men are more likely to, um, be vulnerable to elephants than, than women. Women tend to move in groups. They tend to, um, be really cautious of their environment in general um, while, and, and they're, they're often, they're actually, because they're not, um, conducting livelihood activities that require them to be out in the dark, um, they're, they're much less vulnerable to elephants than the, than the men were. It's interesting. What it makes me think of is I remember, I think it was a story in National Geographic quite a few years ago. And they were looking at um, human and tiger interactions, particularly with uh, women working in like ag- agricultural fields and, and bringing in crops. And these were tigers taking people on a very regular basis. And they started putting uh, or wearing hats or masks with faces on the back of it because they were always tacking from behind. So it, it, now it looked like the tiger was being watched by people. What is the takeaway from the work that you were doing from an educational perspective to help people understand how they can minimize their their risk of what can be a fatal interaction? That is so interesting to hear about the tigers. I did not know that. Um, And I think, you know, in terms of, and I should add also that one of the other key findings is that elders because um, they might have cataracts or they might ha- be hard of hearing they they also um, tended to be more at risk and so there was kind of this mutual sharing of uh, by their female uh, household members of uh, labor and resources and that really served to protect the elders in the end um, and in terms of uh, education and you know, the, the big so what, you know, I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a need to really understand, I think there's a need for a lot more research in this area to really identify some of those key um, cultural levers that we might be able to push and pull in order to um, really help um, men in particular. And, and I think that there's some interesting policy recommendations in terms of land use and um, how we can. Um, uh, so some of the work that had been done by EcoExist, just to backtrack a little, was to create um, elephant corridors where there's kind of um, known historical pathways that elephants tend to use more frequently and to not um, allocate agricultural land in proximity to those. And I think that's a really great model that we can use in thinking about um, cattle crawls where they're 
um, located and in terms of thinking about, um, you know, from a more policy perspective, how we can kind of uh, recognize that both elephants and people are using this landscape in very uh, vibrant ways. And we need to really consider from a, you know, a landscape perspective, what does that look like? How can we um, mitigate any any conflicts that that might arise um, from just better planning? Um, and one of the other um, takeaways is the importance of these inter-household relationships, um, in particular with the elders and uh, with, with women. Um, and so... Uh, I think it's really important that from a from a, um, a landscape use perspective, we really also incorporate those social relationships. Um, and so, f- you know, families really thrive when they're living near each other um, and and in proximity to each other. Um, and there is um, a chance that as these villages grow, that those kinds of relationships will. Um, will be a lot harder to come by. And so I think, uh, you know, that's something that uh, village planners really need to be cognizant of, that these relationships are helping to protect the most vulnerable members of society. I'm not sure if this was part of the, the, the scope of what you were looking at, but just observationally during the period of time that you were there and the conversations that you were having, what was the, I mean, you maybe alluded to this a little bit um, kind of at the start of our conversation, but what was the, the general feeling about what is quite an obvious increase in the population of elephants in that area and how the, the people who live there feel the government should be um, you know, like dealing with it if they, if they do see it as an issue, which, which it seems like in many instances and from my time there, a lot of people would rather see less elephants, but on a global perspective, we kind of uh, naively, I would say, see the elephant success of Botswana as something that which we all hope will proliferate because we know of the, the threats uh, to elephant populations in other parts of Africa. And Botswana has been one example of where elephant populations are actually increasing. And globally, the view very much is, well, keep that going because we need to make sure that we're protecting elephants. But the reality on the ground is there are people in these places. There are not these unpopulated, vast areas where there's only wildlife. And I think that's probably uh, misunderstood. So what was the, the general feeling of elephants as a... Would they like to see them more as a resource? I mean, clearly they're getting a byproduct, which is the firewood, which they're legally um, allowed to go and, and harvest. But elephants as an actual resource for the people uh, to you know, mitigate this risk of living with them. I mean, and we, I mean, we haven't even really talked about um, crop damage and damage to, to buildings, which obviously goes on as well. Yeah, that's a great question. And I don't mean <clears throat> when i spoke earlier about coexistence you know i it's not some like peaceful I, idyllic that we can kind of uh, imagine where everything's hunky dory no people are are not thrilled about living with elephants and rightfully so um 
there's, you know, um, there's conflict over all kinds of, of resources, including their drinking water. This village that I lived in at the time that I lived there did not have potable water. So they went to the, the Delta to collect water every day. And I remember one morning walking down to the, to the river to get my water. And, um, you know, I, there were elephants there and it was very, very scary. Um, people got angry because the water was muddy. Um, so it was less potable for them. Um, and, and, you know, in all kinds of ways, elephants really impact people's lives. Um, I, I remember I was at um, a Kotla meeting um, for a community meeting when the the chief of the village announced that the President Masisi was going to um, overturn the hunting ban um, that had been of in course, place. Of course, con- globally, that was very controversial. Yes, yeah. And, and I can say that 100% of the the participants of that meeting stood up and applauded they were so happy that that was finally being looked at and i'm i'm not sure that it was so much about um about the ability to start hunting as it was that they felt like they were finally being heard um and so i think that you know there you know and, and as a researcher in that area i would walk around and talk to people, especially at the very beginning, before people really got to know me, and that I was I'm much more of a social scientist than I am um, an ecologist. And so, um, you know, at the at the very beginning, they would constantly accuse me, you know, you're elephants, you're elephants, and there was this sense of like, well, they're not elephants for us; they're elephants for you as a foreigner. Um, and so I think that um, the the overturning of the hunting ban, which, by the way, did not actually impact people in the eastern panhandle because they're the um, community based, um, the CBNRM, community based natural resource management um, uh, co- concessions in that area are not hunting concessions. So they weren't actually even getting any monetary benefits from from. whether there was a hunting ban or not. Um, So it was, it was just really interesting to realize just how, uh, you know, how people are, are very angry about the elephants. And you're right. This isn't about Botswana. We shouldn't be looking to Botswana to solve our, our elephant conservation problems. You know, this is about securing elephant habitat across the continent um, in places where, Elephants are currently not uh, safe. Um, And so I think by looking to Botswana as kind of this safe haven, we might be putting all of our cards, you know, all of our bets and all of our bets in the wrong uh, on the wrong table. And so I think that there's something to be said about kind of the, you know, the importance of zooming out and, and really using using an ethnographic approach to understand what are those impacts really, um, and and also using a landscape approach. So using um, all of these scales to really understand how people are in, are, are impacted, um, you know what it means for them. Just as a way of bringing this really interesting and fascinating insight to a close, do you have a, a kind of a view on as you, we think about the future of conservation? 
and how humans are going to live in these landscapes. I, I personally am very much of the view that seeing uh, conservation of wild animals as kind of separate to us existing in a landscape has never worked and will never work. And we need to have a far more integrated approach where we're looking at situations like you've been describing and working out how we can exist in the same landscape rather than always our solution being put a fence around it and call it a national park and no one can be in it. And it's, you know, it's, it's like a, a giant zoo in a way. And, and I realize that there has been great successes in, in conservation and the protection of species in that way, but I just don't see that as a long-term solution personally. What is, what is your view as we, we project forward the next 50, 100 years as to how we manage this very difficult balance of, of conservation and people in the landscape and interacting with wildlife? That's a, a really tough question. I mean, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head. For so long, conservation has, um, you know, invested into, um, into the parks model. And we know that that doesn't work in all places. It is not, um, you know, it is not a panacea to our wildlife conservation problems. And I think um, for so long, um, you know, we've just seen, and I think exactly what you said, people and and wildlife as um, belonging in separate domains when we know, in fact, that we are constantly interacting, that our worlds are mutually shaped. And um, I think I think one of, um, well, you and, and you, you also talked about it with um, fences. There's this new line of uh, research, the fence ecology research, which I think is really exciting and um, really pre- presents new ways of better understanding from a, a more um, landscape t- uh, approach. What are the impacts of of fences on on our landscapes and and in terms of wildlife and people, um, and I think that this uh, you know we re- really need to bring a more integrative approach to uh, really understand what are the the how are we mutually shaping the landscape, and part of that is you know this response to each other, and that's one thing that I think is really fascinating with elephants and with people which is that we know that people respond to elephants and we know that elephants respond to people. Um, and we're kind of just at the dawn of this, um, of this research in terms of understanding what are, what are these dynamics actually like? Um, and so it really requires um, more than just uh, helicopter research with uh, using surveys. It requires, you know, this cross scalar approach to really understand how our, people and, and wildlife co-creating the landscape um, in ways that we we are really just beginning to understand. We have so much more to learn about how we are going to shape this, this future of conserving landscapes and wildlife. Uh, so thank you so much for your time and your insight into the research that you've been doing, Lauren. Uh, and I hope to speak to you uh, again in the future when you've uh, you're working on new projects you must keep me in the loop as to what you're doing great thanks so much for your time byron it was great to be on your podcast 
Of course, as with every show, our podcast partner on this episode is Modern Huntsman. If you want to see what Modern Huntsman are up to, head over to modernhuntsman.com, especially in the lead up to the launch of Volume 6, which is going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. We're just in the final stages of putting the the volume together, and it's looking incredible already. So modernhuntsman.com, head over there, and uh, you can get your subscriptions in and in the next couple of weeks pre-orders will be opening for volume six as well so you don't you don't want to miss out on that go and subscribe to the newsletter because uh, there's some really interesting monthly columns and that gets fired out uh, once a week so that you don't miss any of the updates on the website thank you very much for listening i'm looking forward to bringing you a brand new episode focusing on the science of conservation in two weeks time 